So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12, really looking at the second part of that, continuing the message from that we began last week. Now, as a lead-in to that, I thought about Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is one of my favorite psalms because it provides great hope of redemption while at the same time facing the reality of the darkness of our sin. Verse 3 of that that psalm begins with a sobering rhetorical question. Remember, a rhetorical question is one that doesn't have to be answered because the answer is so obvious. In verse 3, the psalmist says, If you... Speaking to the Lord in prayer, if you should keep iniquities, O Yahweh, O Lord, who could stand? If you should keep iniquities. What do you mean? If you should keep record. If God would keep record of our sins, who would stand before him? And that is stand in judgment. Who could survive a judgment where God knows all of your sins and he's kept record of them and he's going to hold you accountable to them? Well, the answer is obvious. The psalmist doesn't even have to give it. The answer is no one. uh, Just think about, people don't do this as much anymore, which is a good thing, but those trees, you know, where people mark their initials, when people mark their initials, it's there forever. Forever. Until the tree dies and goes away. But that's what our sins do to us. They mark us. And we're forever stained with our sins. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness. The impossible has happened. God has has come up with a way where those all those marks in the tree trunk that are there forever where the tree trunk can be healed, the tree trunk of your life. Those sins can be wiped away. Where you're no longer treated as if you had had sinned. Although you're guilty of sin, your slate is wiped clean by the blood of of Christ. And that term, that you may be feared, shows why God actually forgives. He wants to save you, but it's ultimately that you would fear Him. What does the word fear mean? Ultimately, in that context, it's talking about worship. That you would worship him. And, and really the, 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 the worship is, is, is of our hearts as we are saved. is overflowing. But overflowing because of God's wonderful redemption to us. Now verse 7. Again, it's all this is leading up to this. Verse 7. The psalmist says this. Talking to Israel. He says, O Israel, wait for Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. So if you're not familiar with that, that's from the Legacy Standard Bible. Oh, Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness. And listen, and with him is not just redemption. With him is abundant redemption. Abundant redemption. The psalmist admonition and command is to Israel, but this applies to us as believers. To wait for him. That is, what does it mean to wait on Yahweh? It means to place your hope in him. And not hope as, as we use the word hope, which is really cheap. Um, the way we use hope. But biblical hope is a confident expectation. 
So you place, you wait on Yahweh by placing your confident expectation in Him that He will save you. By placing your confident expectation, your hope in Christ that He will, He died to wash away all your sins. All the marks, the sin marks in your, in the trunk of your life can be made whole, can be made well. Now, He does this because of His loving kindness, not because of anything we deserve. And, he does it, and he, the way he does it, he provides abundant redemption. Just think about that. Abundant redemption. So if you will turn to him, and many of you have, you turn to Christ, he forgives all of your sins. But that's not the end. He provides abundant redemption. So much redemption He's provided things that you would never guess. You would never imagine. In fact, this is sort of what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, but just as the eye has seen, things which the eye has not, sorry, just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But Paul continues, but to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. So probably refers to, to the apostles and the prophets giving us the word of God, but ultimately applies to all those who receive the spirit for understanding. But part of the abundant redemption of that God is providing us is the blessing of being his inheritance, of having been made his inheritance. And that's the connection I want you to see with Ephesians. That God's uh, redemption is so abundant, he doesn't just forgive your sins. He forgives your sins. And that's part of the, one of the blessings that Paul lists in Ephesians 1. But this morning we're coming to verses and continuing from last week about how God has made us his inheritance. And it's discussing that fact that he has made us his inheritance that we're going to continue to discuss this morning. And rather than just jump right into verses 11, 12, I'd like us to, again, read the word of God and read it in context in this Long sentence of Paul from verse 3 to verse 14. Let's read that together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of His grace, which He caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Him. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth in Him. In Him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given 
who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. So Paul wants you to understand that through the redemption you have in Christ, you've been made God's inheritance to multiply the praise of God's glory. And Paul provides three compelling reasons to praise the glory of God, his his choice of you, his commitment to you, and his purpose of making you his inheritance. And we, we began looking at this last week. His choice of you was the first compelling reason. We looked at that last week and, and kind of did more what uh, Abner Chow calls a lerman. It's part lecture, part sermon, and took you into some of the details. We're not going to redo that here this morning. But, but uh, this verse is translated various ways, but I think the best way to understand this is that we have been made his inheritance. We've been made his inheritance. And that, that, that is probably the best translation because it conveys that, that passive uh, verb of, of the Greek. It helps us understand what the blessing of being God's inheritance it's also true we have an inheritance, and we looked at that last week, but I think the emphasis here is that he has made us his inheritance. So notice his choice. It's his choice to make you his inheritance. And there's nothing nothing within ourselves that compelled God to do this. There's nothing that attracted him to make us his inheritance. In fact, there is, there is just sin within us. So he chose to make us his inheritance requiring forgiveness of sins and adopting us as sons, all those who are included in this. But it was his choice, his choice. And that should cause you to praise him, right? to, to, give him, to give him glory. But that's not the only thing. Last week we saw the second, also the second compelling reason to praise the glory of God's grace, and that is his commitment to making you his inheritance. And we only got part of the way through this, so we'll pick, pick this up uh, today. So the first part that we covered last week of this is we saw his commitment to make you his inheritance was a commitment that he made in the past. That God's past action, that he had predestined you to be his inheritance. That's clear from the text. The word predestined means to decide beforehand. And that's pretty much as far as we got in, in verse 11. In him we have been made an inheritance having been predestined. And and. This morning, we're going to continue to look at, like, why? Why did God predestine you to be his inheritance? The reason that God predestined you to be his inheritance is made clear in the text. In verse 11, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, the word purpose. God predestined you to be his inheritance because he predestined you. He purposed uh, to inherit you. Uh, we, if you look at the phrase, the prepositional phrase, according to the purpose of him. It's according to his purpose. That means God had a purpose in mind. It's his plan. And, and what does the purpose mean? In the context, the purpose refers to that which is planned in advance. That which is planned in advance. Even these little words just all were together. Predestined, purposed, chose then this whole context are working together with the same emphasis that it's God's work. And we praise him for that. His work. Now Paul spoke about, uh, has, we've seen 
Paul speak about the purpose and will of God already, and he will yet in Ephesians, but he's spending a, he's a, he's emphasizing a lot in this text. Just look at verse five, according to the good pleasure of His will. Verse nine, according to the good pleasure which He purposed in Him. Then in verse eleven that we're looking at, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And then also in chapter three, verse eleven, Paul says this. He says to me, reading verses being. Picking it up in verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim the, to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches uh, in, of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to, through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's verse 11. Which this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only did did God choose you before the foundation of the world, he had an eternal purpose in mind. And that purpose we're going to talk about is that result to the praise of his glory. And even this is a, such an important concept for us, even for Paul, especially looking beyond the, the book that we're looking at, Ephesians in Second Timothy one verses eight and nine. Paul says this. He says, talking to uh, Timothy, Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of either of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. The very last letter Paul would write before he was martyred, this is what he's saying, but not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Paul is just so clear. These things began long ago. Preview of coming weeks. We look at verses 13 and 14. This doesn't negate your duty and responsibility to believe the gospel or receive Christ. You see that in verses 13 to 14. You see it in context. But here Paul, in this verse, he's again emphasizing the work of God. It's his purpose. He planned it. He planned it long ago in eternity. Now, thinking through, just thinking through Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we see God's determination and commitment to make you his inheritance, his inheritance by predestining you according to his purpose. Let's look at the past. What God did in the past. But there's something more to show you his commitment to making you his inheritance. It isn't just a, a past predetermination to, according to the purpose of his will. Look at who he's described as in verse 11. He says there, Paul says, according to the purpose of him, he could have said according to the purpose of God. But he didn't. But according to the purpose of him who does what? How is he described there? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The Father is described as Him who works all things to the counsel of His will. This is God's commitment to making you His inheritance 
is seen in the present, his present ongoing action. And that is contained in that phrase, who works, works, not worked, works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, think about that phrase. Make some observations about it. Working all things according to the counsel of his will. First important observation. And this isn't Paul's main point, but I think it's important to make it. The first thing I want to point out is that God works. And God is working. And if God were ever to cease working, you all, all of us would cease to exist. He holds together all things by the power of his being. He works all things according to the counsel of his will by his power. Uh, another way to state this is that God is faithful to carry out and complete his purpose. He, he works all things out. Uh, when we say that God works according to the counsel of his will, the will here refers to the Father's desire or resolve. So when you hear the counsel of his will, think about his desire or his resolve. He's resolved for something to happen and therefore he's working the plan for that to actually happen. And the word counsel refers to wise and intelligent deliberations. Wise and intelligent deliberations. These would be inter-Trinitarian deliberations. Not, not deliberations in the sense like we're not sure what to do. The importance of this of the term according to the counsel, the counsel of his will, that word counsel is showing us that this, this plan to adopt us, his plan to make us his inheritance, is not something that was just quickly thought up. It wasn't quickly thought up. It, it's not based on a whim, um, is what Harold Horner puts it. He says God's decisions and plans are not based on a whim, but one that are carefully thought and care, one has careful interaction. Right? God knows his plan, what he's doing, and he's working the plan. This is, this is really the second, I guess, the second observation that, that we can make from this. Not only does God work his plan, but, but notice the manner of how God works his plan according to his wise counsel. The third observation I want to make is, is the extent of God's work. So not only is God working, not only is he working a wise and intelligent plan, but the third point here is the extent of his work. He works what? Some things. Few things? What does the text say? All things. All things. Sometimes the word all is like bounded by the context. There's clear indicators that the all like isn't all encompassing of every single little person or detail. But there's nothing in this context to do that. All things. He's working all things to achieve his purpose to achieve his goal. That's what the text is saying. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, all things is emphatic. We know that because it's a little bit out of order in the Greek where the all things is brought forward. All things God works according to his, you know, his counsel, counsel of his will. This, this is what God is doing. This this is a, a good description of God's sovereignty. That he's working all things according to his plan, according to his purpose, to achieve his purpose. 
where God not only knows the end, but he also knows how he's going to get to that end. And even though you can choose to turn left or right when you're driving home, God's still sovereign over all things. Can we explain that? No, I can't explain that. But that's what the scriptures tell us. You see, there's nothing that can threaten God's plans. It is not as if God's going through a day saying, I wonder what Mark's going to do today. And how I'll have to respond to that in order to still achieve my purposes. So that's that's a heresy called open theism, where God doesn't quite know. He knows the end, but he doesn't he doesn't know, like he has he's chosen not to know the, like how to get there, and so he's constantly responding to his creation to still achieve his purposes. That that's not what this is talking about. He's working his plan to bring about his predetermined plan. Nothing frustrates God's plans. You know, I like to do home projects, but I have a lot of unfinished home projects. God isn't like that. He completes all his projects, all of everything. In fact, Scripture specifically says he will complete what he has begun in your life. Amen? He's not going to leave you halfway. He's going to complete that. And this is why Paul um, says that, that God controls all things in accordance with his will. He works all things. He controls all things. And and a, a verse that makes this crystal clear, in, in a sense, is, is Romans 8, 28. I'll just read that for you. Romans 8, 28. He says, and we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How can all things work together for good? Because God's doing it. God is working his plan. And Paul elaborates because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren and those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also what glorified that's the completion between justified and glorified that's your life for some of you a lot of your life for others maybe a shorter part but nonetheless God's going to see you over the finish line of of being glorified and not just redeemed, but abundantly redeemed so that you are his inheritance. Do you see God's determination to make you his inheritance? His actions in the past to predestine you and his ongoing actions of working all things according to the counsel of his will. How should you reply? How should you respond to these things? Well, the first is, is to recognize that if Christ is doing this, then we can have extreme confidence in him to carry it out. As we talked about in the beginning, a hope, confident expectation. This is God's work. If you are in Christ, you are Christ's work. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you half done, half completed, stranded somewhere, strung out somewhere. He is going to be with you, to shepherd you, to care for you. He will complete what he has begun in your life. This is why Paul speaks with with almost extreme confidence, not not arrogant, but confidence based on on the Lord's word. And I want you to see this yourself. So turn to Romans. In that same passage I was just quoting from Romans 8, 28, Paul builds on this some very important ramifications for us. Turn to Romans 8, look at verse 31. 
it's really following up on the heels of the passage I just read to you about whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he also called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul's like, here in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what is our response? How should you respond? Here's one. He, he Again, they ask a question, and this is a rhetorical question, meaning it doesn't need an answer, but Paul's going to provide one anyway. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, there's a lot of people against us. Satan's against us. The world's against us. Kind of, in a sense, your your sin is against you. But Paul's point is, if this is his objective and his goal, who could stand against us? Nobody. And he, he builds on this in verse 32. He says, he who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Ephesians isn't the only place that mentions about all things. Every spiritual blessing. God's going to give us all things. He's already given us his most precious gift, his son. How will he not also give us everything else? All things. But listen, he, he builds on this. Um, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He's imagining a, a courtroom scene. Right? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Perhaps Satan shows up and says, you know, that Mark, he looks okay. But no, I, I know. And he begins accusing, throwing accusations. And not false accusations, but like sins I've actually committed. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Notice that word, elect. This isn't, this isn't Mark showing up trying to defend himself. This is God's elect. Look how Paul replies. God is the one who what? Justifies. Christ steps in as the advocate and appeals before the Father. And don't think of the Father as somehow like the mean old judge. And Christ has to somehow convince the mean old judge to let you into heaven. Who do you think sent Christ to be your advocate? The Father. There is no conflict of wills between the Father and the Son. They're perfectly aligned in everything they do. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. You see how he works all things, counsel his will. And Paul elaborates, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or torture, sorry, affliction or, or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He's covering all these different categories. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. He says, just as it is written for your sake, we are putting, we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So not even death. They can put us to death, Paul said, but that doesn't stop God. That, that doesn't cause us to lose the battle. God can raise you from the dead and will raise you from the dead and reward you. And Paul elaborates still more on verse 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. No other created thing. That includes you, which is your greatest enemy. It says you can't lose your salvation. Nothing. No created thing. You're a created thing. You're a created person. That means you cannot lose your salvation. Because God's at work in you. Do you see the abundant redemption that he's provided? How he's working? He's working in your life. Not so you have arrogant confidence, but that you would have reliant confidence. They say reliant. That's, that's faith and trusting in your Lord and your God. He is going to do this. So believers, rejoice that you are God's inheritance. He's going to protect you like his inheritance. You're valuable to him. Again, don't let this go to your head. This isn't about you. This is to the praise of his glory. You and I were nothing. We were not valuable before Christ. But in Christ, we become valuable to our Father. And that's what the scriptures are saying. So rest in the Lord's care of you. Now praise him. Now this isn't, this isn't information to, to help you go pursue sin and do whatever you want. If you, if you go use this and say, well, I guess I, since I'm, I've been made God's inheritance and since I'm protected, I can, I can just live any way I want to. If that's your thinking, you're probably not really saved or at the very best, you're so deceived by sin that you're pursuing a path that's going to destroy your own life. Yes, you, if you are truly elect, you, you can't unelect yourself. But you can so destroy your life and mess your life up with sin that the Lord brings discipline and judgment into your life that he may even end your life early so that you don't bring more shame to his name by how you live. That, that's how our Lord works. Um, and also, beloved, use information like this, these truths, to invite others. I mentioned this last week, but these great truths are, are it's not in limited supply. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ, to tell others of his glorious grace, of his abundant redemption. Now, some of you, some that may listen to this message later, may not be in Christ, or you're not sure. And to you, I just appeal to you to flee to Christ. Put your hope in Christ today. That he would be your Lord and your God. That you would place your confident expectation of him forgiving your sins in him. Because of his perfection. Because of his sacrifice on the cross. Because of his resurrection. Trust in him today. Because you will face God one way or the other. You're either going to face him as your judge. Or you're going to face him as your advocate. And whether you face him as your advocate taking care of you. Uh, interceding for you or whether he's your judge all depends on whether you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or not. So I'm appealing in light of these truths. Believe in him. Trust in him. And walk with him. So we've seen the first two compelling truths or what? The fact that he has made you his inheritance, his decision, his choice of making you his inheritance, and also his work, his, his commitment to making you his inheritance. Now there's, there's one more 
that I want to look at. One more compelling reason. This is found in verse 12. And that is, that is this purpose of making you his inheritance. What is his purpose? So go back to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, if you haven't already, chapter 1, verse 11. His purpose of making you his inheritance. Look at verse 12. It says, to the end that we who, have first, who, who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So the, what, what Paul is saying is that he's, God is revealing his purpose, his, the end of, of what he's going to do right here. That is, this end, to the end that refers to the ultimate purpose of God in making us as an inheritance. Now, the, the word end refers to purpose. The Westminster Shorter Catechism uses the word end in this, in this, with this meaning. Question one asks this, what is the chief, what? End of man. What is the chief end of man? What does the word end mean? It means purpose. What is the chief, meaning the top priority, what is the chief purpose, the top purpose of your life? And what's the answer? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. These things go together. But the first one is to glorify God. Your whole purpose in life is to glorify God. And you do that by believing in Christ and then walking in him according to his his word. The, the reason why that is man's chief end is because God made it that. Does that make sense? The chief end of your life was made the chief purpose of your life by the one who made you. God made you to glorify him. That is your purpose. You never have to live without purpose. No matter what's going on in your life. You could be struggling with depression or going through uh, a really serious health issue and that kind of discourages. Even in that, your purpose is to glorify God through that difficulty. That difficulty is it hasn't come upon you by like chance or accident. The Lord is there with you. He's shepherding you. He's taking you through that. Difficulties at work or difficulties in family relationships. Whatever it is, the Lord's desire, His purpose for you is that you would glorify Him in that. From young to old, your purpose is to glorify God. As a young child, your purpose is to glorify God. As a teenager, your purpose is to glorify God. As a young adult, your purpose is to glorify God. As a middle-aged adult, your purpose is to glorify God in everything. As a senior saint, your purpose is to glorify God. And God knows that our bodies change. We're able to do this and not able to do that at another stage. But no matter what's going on, your purpose is to glorify God. Another way, another way to put this is God's end game is to bring praise to his name. You hear the end game, just the younger generation, you're thinking about a movie, but I'm not talking about the movie. I'm not talking about the Avengers movie. I'm talking about the end game is that last move to bring about the result. And that's to the praise of his glory. God's end game is that we would glorify him and praise him. Everything that God does is, to, is, is, is done with the purpose of bringing glory to his name. Everything. And you might say, well, that, that sure sounds selfish and self-centered. Aren't we, are we not supposed to be self-centered? Yes, you are not allowed to be self-centered because you will do it selfishly. But God is without sin. And he is truly worthy of all this focus, all the praise. We could never give him enough. 
And so don't dare think about God in, in human terms. That it's, you know, for us, it is, it is sin to be self-focused. But God's self-focus results in our good. Our good and our redemption. So yes, it's for his glory, but it's for our good. So God is not doing this from a, uh, uh, any kind of selfish motivation, any sinful selfish motivation. And God's, whatever God proposes, he actually does. So his purpose, his end game, is that we who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And remember that God is completely effective, completely efficient. He does everything that he sets out to do. So the fact that it's stated as a purpose, we can assume the result will naturally follow. So we're really talking about both of these things. God's purpose results in exactly what he planned. Now, now what does it mean when God purposes purposes everything to the praise of his glory? In any conversation, especially studying the word of God, the meaning of the word is, is important to intelligent communication and conversation. If I can say something, I use a word, and you don't understand the context of the word, then meaning hasn't been conveyed. We really haven't communicated. I might have talked, but we really haven't communicated. Communication hasn't happened. So what, is it, what does praise mean? Well, for some it means like singing songs. Well, it's not limited to that. But the word praise has the idea of approval or applause. Uh, here Harold Horner explains that the, the word for praise from the earliest times in Greek literature has had the idea of approval or applause. And, and this meaning is clear in a number of New Testament texts. I'll just read a few for you, and you, you can pick it up. And this isn't, this isn't just uh, a, approval or applause for God, but for in, in, of, of any others in situation. Just listen and detect. I'll let you detect who, who the praise is for. Romans 13.3, Paul says, For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. What is he saying? If you do what is right, a good government's going to praise you for doing what is right. It's going to commend you for doing what is right. It's the purpose of government, not only to restrain evil, but to, to reward that, those who have the right behavior. Um, but also in 1 Corinthians 4 5, Paul uses it, the word praise. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. Then each one's praise will come to him from God. So here, here Paul is saying that, that the God is going to, to judge his people. When he, when he says that, he's not saying in the salvific sense, but he is going to evaluate his people, each one according to what? What he has done. And if you've done what is right, he will praise you. He will commend you. And again, as I've said before, even the things we do what is right, we don't that are right, we don't do perfectly. So even in the Lord's commendation, it's full of his grace. We can never deserve or demand his commendation. But as Paul is just simply saying, God's going to praise good behavior. He will. Second uh, Corinthians 8.18, we see this used again. Second Corinthians 8.18. Here, Paul is, is, is writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, talking about uh, an offering uh, given, that they're collecting this offering to bring to the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
and he is he's telling the Corinthians, and he says, and we have sent along with him, that is with Titus, the brother of those whose praise in the things, the gospel is throughout all the churches. Just think about that. So along with Titus, they're sending this brother. How is this brother described? Whose praise in the things of the gospel is throughout all the churches. Now, I think the reason he's not named there is because he'd get a big head and his reward would be lost. But the churches, like you're talking about multiple churches, and the Corinthians knew who Paul was talking about, although we don't. They knew who he was talking about. And what was his reputation? His reputation was his, his actions for the sake of the gospel. They knew about this. He was, he was what? Commended. Because he was committed. We don't even know. The sacrifices he had made for the gospel, the things that he had sacrificed in loving, loving brethren for the sake of the gospel. But his life oriented around the gospel. And he was known for that. And they praised him. They praised him for that. Not, not in a worshipful sense. Not at all. This is just saying he, they commended him. Right? That he did what was right. Thus, when we praise God, we give approval of his actions. Uh, when we, when, but when we do that, understand that, that we do, we approve of his actions from a humble, humble, redeemed uh, servant position. His people. We're not, we're not like, God can give us ultimate approval because he knows he's the judge. He's the ruler of all. When we God get, give God praise, we're simply commending him that he's done the right thing. But, but again, not in any kind of authoritative sense like God's, God's approval of us. When we do the right thing. We approve of God redeeming us because it is for our good. So when you approve of God, you, you praise him. You praise him, and, and you're essentially giving him applause. When he's accomplished his great work, you will give him applause. You, you will not be able to restrain yourself. So sometimes praise takes the literal form of clapping your hands, applause. Like the psalmist says in, in Psalm 47.1, he says, Oh, clap your hands, O people. Make a loud shout to God with a sound, with, with a, sound a shout of joy. In other words, don't be quiet. This isn't like quiet, dainty, polite clapping. This is a loud applause for God. And in an eternal state, when God is among us, we will not be silent in this. You will, you will sound out. You will shout uh, shouts of joy, loud shouts of joy. But that's not the only form of praising Him. More typical in our culture, the, the applause will, will take other forms. Praying. Singing, uh, sometimes just singing with a, with kind of quite internal. It's an internal joy, an internal praise, and it results in a desire to obey God. So don't think that praise is simply singing. It is that, but it's more than that. It's that's how you live your life. It's a response because of what God has done for you and what you want to, how you want to live for Him. And praise is a major theme in Ephesians. The, the, to the praise of God. Praise of his glory. And in particular, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we looked at this, but I'll just point out Ephesians 6, I mean, chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his, of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So there's like three rounds, although they're not equal in length. There's like three different sections in this one long verse. And each section ends with the idea of praise. To the praise 
of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Now, what does it mean, his, his glory? Well, the, the term glory, and again, pronoun his, so we're talking about God. This is God's reputation. When you talk about what is the glory, the glory of God, it is his reputation, his splendor, his power, and radiance. It's all those things combined. God's glory is his reputation, his splendor, his power, and his radiance. Harold, Harold Horner explains it this way. He says the word glory has the idea of the reflection of the essence of one's being. The reflection of the essence of one's being. The summation of all one's attributes, whether it refers to God or to a human being. Unquote. And obviously in Ephesians 1, this is talking about God. So we talk about the, the glory of God. You're not just talking about something visible, like you can see the glory of God. This is who God is, his character, his radiance, his power, his attributes. Uh, to sum it up, you could say his glory is his reputation. To the glory of his reputation, he, he made you his inheritance. He's working all things out for the, for the counsel of his will. Now, if you just look at verse 11, he says, uh, sorry, verse 12, in the end that we who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Who's the we there? Who's the we? Well, if you read some commentators, they do some really strange things and introduce some really strange ideas there. But remember the context is king in Bible translation. I mean, if you look at the context, is there anything in the context that suggests the we might be referring to somebody different in verse 12 than it does in verse 11? That it is it any different than the us in the verses that come before that? The answer is no. There's nothing introduced here. When Paul wants to talk about the Gentiles versus the Jews, not verses, but when he talks about God bringing together the Jews and Gentiles, well, he makes that very clear by the context. And he does that later on in Ephesians. We'll get there. He's very clear. He knows how to do that. Here, there's nothing clearly changing the who the, the we refers to. And I mention that just in case you're reading other commentaries. A lot of commentaries do some strange things here, but, but the we of verse 12 is the same we of verse 11 is the same us that you've seen before all through this text. Who's it referring to? It's referring to Paul as the, as the writers, referring to the Ephesian believers, and by extension, Paul knew what he was writing in Scripture, all genuine believers. All genuine believers. So there's no, no change of subject in the we of, of verse uh, 12. That's not what he's talking about. What about what is this description of we who first hoped in Christ? And sometimes that trips people up. He's like, well, maybe that's the Jews who first believed in Christ, or maybe that's the original believers who first hoped in Christ. But again, just look at the context of we. What does we have to mean in this context? There's no change. We who first hoped is a little bit, it's, it's a word that first hoped is, is one word in Greek. Okay? But it's, it's ultimately referring to believers who are reading the epistle, you could say versus ones who will come to faith later. Okay? If you're saved in Christ, you have already hoped, hoped beforehand is a, is a way to, to think about this. It's those who have already placed their hope in Christ because of the work of God in Christ. Okay? There will be others because the elect are not in. The, church, the age of the church continues. There are still people believing. There are still yet people, the elect, who have yet to believe and, 
and come into the body of Christ, right? those who have already believed, those who have already placed their hope in Christ, are, are the ones that, that Paul is speaking about. That we who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, again, I just appeal to you, if you are not in Christ, to place your hope in Christ. You might hear the word predestination and, and react um, sinfully or errantly um, to that and think, well, I guess there's, if God's predestined, I guess there's nothing that I can do. I need to be very clear. Do not misunderstand predestination. God has predestined all those who would come to him. That's why they're called the elect. The elect. At the same time, God calls everyone, every man, every woman, every boy and girl to believe in Christ. It is your responsibility to believe. And if you don't believe, it is your fault. And you'll be held accountable in the bar of God's justice and righteousness for having not believed. And you might ask, how does God bring these things together? His total sovereignty and our responsibility, how does God bring those together? I don't know. And neither does any other person on this earth. God has chosen not to reveal that, but both are absolutely true. Both are clear from Scripture, and so we can preach them and teach them uh, uh, clearly and with authority. Commanding unbelievers to believe, and at the same time, understanding that those who do believe are the elect called by God, which results in the praise of His glory. Now you might be wondering, let me just back up a minute. So these are the three compelling reasons in verses 11 and 12 to, to praise the glory of God. His choice of making you his inheritance, his commitment to making you his inheritance, and his purpose of making you his inheritance. And you might be thinking, why is Paul spending so much time on theology? Theology. Can't we get to some practical stuff? Maybe you might be struggling in your marriage. You see Ephesians 5 hanging out. You might be that's that's so long from now. <laughs> At the pace my pastor is going, that's so long from now. <laughs> I would just tell you read ahead. Right? We'll get there. We're not gonna we're not gonna rush there. Why is Paul doing this? I mentioned this in the beginning, but I want to remind you, and I'll remind you at, at portions through this. Sound theology leads to sound living. Healthy theology leads to healthy living. In other words, say orthodox theology leads to orthodox living. So Paul is laying the groundwork needed in theology that he will use later to exhort you in your relationships with one another, to exhort you in pursuing repentance, to exhort you in your relationship as a husband and a wife, as children even, slaves even, we apply that as you know employees, but he was speaking to slaves then. He'll get into all of the nitty-gritty details of your life, not all, but a lot of the nitty-gritty details of your life, the most important relationships in your life he'll get into later. But he's doing something now that's very important and needed. And it's one of the reasons why churches today go so awry because they avoid the theology. They think that they can just 
They could just jump a parachute into the application without having any theology. And they go against scripture when they do this. The theology, how you think about God, determines how you live. What you think God is doing, your understanding of his purpose, helps you live rightly. So if you don't understand what God has already done for you, you might be tempted to reject what God tells you to do. Like, well, why should I do that? Or if you don't understand, when you get to when you get to Ephesians 5 and talking about a husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church, if you don't understand that the ultimate purpose isn't for you to love your wife as Christ loves the church. That's just the like the the, the the human goal. But but your vertical goal, that's your horizontal goal, but your vertical goal is what? glorify God. Why should a husband live sacrificially for his wife? To the glory of God. Why should a wife submit to her husband which lots of times she might know better than he is? For the glory of God. Why should a child honor and obey her parents or his parents? For the glory of God. Why should a slave be work submissively to his master for the glory of God. You, you see, it all comes back to Ephesians 1. His purpose, your purpose, is to glorify him. So, why we're studying theology? Dig in. Read. Learn. And if you feel like you're getting a little impatient to get to Ephesians 4 or 5 and 6, go ahead and read ahead. It's all right. And we'll get there eventually. We'll dig in. But it's all to result in the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are our God. That in your wisdom, you have purposed that we would be your inheritance. But we know, we know ourselves in a limited sense anyway. And we know that there's There's nothing, Lord, to treasure within us except Christ. And we thank you for calling us into relationship with you through Christ. That's in him we have redemption. In him we have been made sons and daughters. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. In him we've been made your inheritance. And we thank you that you're working all things to the counsel of your will. The way you have purposed, you will bring about. Lord, we we just want to ask for your help to trust you in our daily lives as, as we walk with you and just ask you to strengthen our faith in you as we do this. It's in the name of Christ and to the praise of your glory that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.